copy of God's Word. Grab one. We're going to be several different places this morning as we kick off uh, a new series uh, titled Back to the Basics. And let me say this. I loved uh, last week's message. If you were here, uh, Nick Griffey, our former intern, uh, was here preaching on Ephesians chapter 2 and all about God's gracious gift of salvation. We saw in Ephesians 2 how we were sinners both by nature and by choice. We were dead in our sins and unable to bring ourselves into spiritual life. And then the two incredible words, but God. But God, being rich in mercy, saved us, not according to our own works, but by grace through faith in Jesus alone. And what I loved about the message wasn't that Nick was the most eloquent preacher in the world. He'd be the first to say that that is definitely not the case. And it wasn't even that he said anything new from the text that I hadn't heard before or said it in a particularly creative way because there was a lot more that could have been said. But here's what I love. He did bring us back to the basics. And hear this as a bit of a pastoral warning. Sometimes we are always seeking the next thing, the next study, the next experience, the next thing that we miss, the basics that God has in front of us in the present. We're often looking forward and missing the very simple, mundane, but eternally important things in front of us. Because we know this, the future always appears more exciting than your daily life today. But life with God, obedience to God, is built on a foundation of mundane, simple basics that regardless of the future must be present in your life today. And over the next several weeks, I want us to get back to these basics together to think about building a firm foundation of faith in your life. And the first foundation we're going to lay this morning is studying God's word. And notice I didn't say reading God's word. Reading God's word is good. It's great. But reading alone isn't the goal. Consider with me Psalm chapter 1. Look what Psalm chapter 1 says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. It says meditation. Now, when we think meditation, we often think of somebody, they got their legs crossed, they're sitting there, and they're going on like a, on, on some sort of rug, right? The, the world talks about meditation, and they're emptying their mind, but the biblical definition of meditation is to fill your mind, to fill your mind and to chew on God's word. The goal is really summed up in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And what happens when that happens? You teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. You sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And let me say this. The word of God cannot dwell in you richly if you simply read it in a passive way, the way you might read a text message or a social media post or an email from work 
or read a news article. No, rather, the word of God needs to be studied, consumed, and dwelt upon in order for it to dwell within us. So how do we study the Bible? We often assume when people come to faith in Christ, they're just going to naturally know how to do all this stuff, right? And so how do we best meditate on it? And I think it begins with understanding what the Bible is. Let's start with that. What is the Bible. And here's the answer. If you have notes, you can follow along here. The Bible is divine revelation through human authors. It is divine revelation through human authors. This is what the Bible actually says about itself. This is what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. Look at this. All scripture... And if you look in the context here, this was the Old Testament that Timothy had been taught from his youth, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. First, first it tells us that the Bible is breathed out by God. And I want to illustrate that for you by having everybody put your hand right up in front of your face. Come on, we're all going to look silly together. Can you feel when you talk, you can kind of feel breath coming off of it, right? I know I can. In the same sense, it's saying that the Bible, the Word of God, that is that breath. It is God's very Word to us. This is Jesus' perspective on the Bible as well. You can look here at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, and we're going to look at this section a decent bit this morning. Jesus is responding to this controversy with this group called the Sadducees over marriage and the resurrection of the dead. The question is, hey, after Jesus returns and we're resurrected, are are we going to be married? How's that all going to work? And look what Jesus says in response to them. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. There's raw Jesus there, right? You are wrong. For in the resurrection, they they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Notice that part. He says, have you not read what was said to you by God? Jesus is saying, hey, the authors, what they wrote on the page is equal to the word of God from his mouth. And that isn't just true for the Old Testament. Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians how that church received his words not as the word of men, but as the words of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter says that Paul's writings were scripture. And you can read at the end of the book of John all about how Jesus' apostles would be given revelation to speak of Jesus and his ministry. The Bible is divine revelation written by human authors. Now, That's pretty general, right? I think the Bible gets a little more specific, so let's do that. Let's get a little bit more specific. We also see that the Bible is inerrant, infallible, and sufficient. You can take a second to write those down. Those are big words, but very important 
words. You could spend a lot of time looking at the history of why they chose those words versus other words, and, and there's tons of history behind that. You can go read if you ever get real bored or are interested in something like that. But inerrant, unable to error, infallible, incapable of being wrong, and the scriptures are sufficient to quote 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 again, it tells us that the scripture is breathed out by God. So therefore, since God can't lie and can't be wrong, the scriptures can't lie and can't be wrong, right? And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There we see the Bible is sufficient to bring us to know God and serve him fully. That the person serving God can be complete and do every good work of faith if they know his word. That the Bible is the only true foundation on which we build our spiritual lives. There are other good things out there, traditions, teachings, things you can learn via other disciplines and other sources. Those are good, right? For example, you don't come to the Bible to learn how to do algebra. You go to a math teacher to learn how to do algebra, right? But all of that is ultimately grounded in the truth. And what the Bible is impacts how we study it. What the Bible is will impact how you look at it. It is God's word to us. And from this, we can begin to build three foundations for studying the Bible. And here's the first little stone of the foundation. First, we must study the Bible as a book. Now, some folks are already going to be taken aback a little bit. You you mean, this may sound controversial, but, but hear this. God's word has been written down for us. So it is divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, but it is still written communication. My English teachers and reading teachers will love this. You have context and you study words and phrases and parts of speech. God has chosen to communicate via words, via communication, via language. And so it doesn't take an English major or even a lover of reading, but a willingness to consider what is written. God has spoken through a book. And it's a very diverse book, right? You've got poetry and the Psalms. You've got history and law and exodus. The gospels are really kind of their own genre, talking about the life and ministry of Jesus. You've got letters from Paul. And this may seem obvious, but I think it's important to realize you don't read poetry the same way you read letters. At least I hope you don't, right? So some folks will come. There's a, there's a, a verse in the Psalms that says, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Now, is that telling us that God doesn't own the cattle on the thousandth and first hill? Well, no, right? It's poetry. It's in the Psalms. It's using parts of speech and similes and metaphors. This is how God has spoken. There's an incredible book we read in seminary called Why Johnny Can't Preach. It's excellent. They give you this book and go, and go, hopefully you're not going to be Johnny, right? And it's written by a preaching professor, and he's trying to explain why preaching has changed over the years. And, and here's his point. Let me ruin the thesis. If you were going to run out and buy the book, let me, let me ruin it for you. 
He said, we struggle to preach and teach God's word because we struggle to understand it, and we struggle to understand it because we don't know how to read. In other words, he says, Johnny can't preach because Johnny can't read. In other words, the question we must start with is, what do the words on the page say? God has spoken through words, and language works certain ways. So when we come to the Bible, doing our work to understand the words, just like we would do any other book or written communication. The second foundation we build is that we must study the Bible as one book that is all about Jesus. One book that is all about Jesus. This is important. Because we don't come to study the Bible, its words and parts of speech, without a point. It isn't simply a bunch of books just randomly thrown together. It is one book with one central storyline, namely that God is going to fulfill the promise he made to Adam. That he would crush the head of the serpent and reverse the curse that was brought upon the world through Adam's sin. And the whole Bible is opening up that promise through Abraham and the nation of Israel, foretold by the prophets and Psalms. And let me tell you, people didn't just dream this up. This is actually how Jesus taught his followers to read the Bible. Let me show you this. On the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, Jesus is resurrected, and he's walking around in his post-resurrection body. And this is what he said, Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Jesus says, hey, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, it's all about me. And it's all about what I'm going to do in dying for your sins and rising again from the dead. So if we don't understand how the Bible comes together, we will never understand it. In fact, many of us think that, well, you've got this whole thing through the Old Testament, and then you've got the New Testament, which is all about Jesus. Let me tell you something. The two-thirds of your Bible that is the Old Testament, that's all about him, too. He's there. He is the seed of Adam that's going to crush the serpent's head. He is the better Moses who's going to lead his people into the promised land. He's the better David, the king who will rule over his people in righteousness and holiness. He's the true and better prophet who speaks God's word without compromise. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And he is the end, the purpose of all of God's promises. And without seeing the Bible as one central story, we will miss Jesus, and thus we will miss the point of the Bible. And third, the third foundation we need to lay is that we must study the Bible with the posture of prayer and faith. The posture of prayer and faith. While it is a book, it isn't just any other book. Friends, let me tell you something. There there is no book like it where the living author speaks to your present situation through these words. 
Friends, we come to this book in order to meet with the divine author and to know him and how to live for him. And that's why the Bible calls us to come to it with faith. This is why we should pray for God's help to believe it and to understand it. Remember, we need, when Jesus opened the minds to understand the scriptures on the Emmaus Road, we need him to do the same thing for us to open up our minds to understand the scriptures. Consider the prayer of David in Psalm 119. If you want to read an incredible psalm, go look at Psalm 19. They take each letter of the Hebrew alphabet and, just go, and, and uses it to just jump off into how great God's word is. And look at one of the prayers he says there. Psalm 119.18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Friends, that's the prayer we need to have coming toward God's word. And even after coming to Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our eyes and our hearts to the truth of God's word, to pray for his help. And that's why we must study God's word with the posture of prayer and faith. But even after that, let's say we're, we're coming to do our morning or evening devotion and we, we've prayed We've opened our Bible. We know what it is. What do we do from there? We read the text, but how do we get deeper? Let's go three questions to ask to go deeper. Three questions to ask to go deeper. First, what is happening in the text? Ask yourself this. What is happening in the text? As you read a chapter or set of chapters, consider what words and themes are repeated. What ways do the words link together the overall story or argument? Has this been seen somewhere else before? Think about the small words, the prepositions, and the tenses of words. This will keep us from, you'll see this all the time in Bible studies, where folks go, well, to me, this verse means. And then they say something off the wall that you're like, I don't know where you just got that, right? Because they treat this as if it's some sort of sentimental thing, as if, well, I can just interpret words however I want. Well, you don't do that with anything else out in the world. You don't go and go, well, I feel like that stop sign actually says go faster. That, that doesn't work in the real world, right? Words have meaning, and that's actually how Jesus studied the Bible. Matthew chapter 22, again, is so important. Jesus is correcting the, the Sadducees, and notice what he hinges his point on. Matthew twenty-two thirty-one and 32. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the living, of the dead, but of the living. So he's quoting here from the book of Exodus, and he hinges his whole point on two words in the English, one word in the Greek, the words I am. The fact that God is, in the present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that means that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't completely dead, but they are living and that there is hope for them for a resurrection for the future. This is what Jesus draws from, and he draws it from the, from the tense that the word is in, that it's present tense and not past tense. 
This verb is important. The verbs on the page are important to know what God has said and who God is. He's spoken in words, in syntax, in grammar, in parts of speech. So we need to know this in order to truly dig into the text. But then there's a second question we ask. Not just what's happening in the text, but second, what's happening behind the text? What's happening behind the text? This means we must consider the author, the audience, historical context, right? All very important stuff. Take again, Matthew chapter 22, just as an example for us. It's important to know who the Sadducees are when Jesus is responding to them, right? Like, it really helps to know, for example, that the Sadducees denied the reality of the resurrection of the dead, And so Jesus even responding to them is kind of interesting. We're actually told that in Matthew chapter 22. And it's also important to know that the the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, only believed in the first five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's it. They didn't believe in the prophets. They didn't believe in that. They had those five books. And that would actually make sense as to why Jesus quoted from Exodus there to these folks. And knowing that background kind of helps us fill that out a little bit. It's also helpful considering the context Jesus was a, or Matthew was a disciple of Jesus who wrote his gospel to a primarily Jewish audience. That's why you see him dealing with some very Jewish-centered things that seem kind of odd to us. Why would he even include this controversy between Jesus and all these Jewish religious leaders And you'll see in the context, if you read through Matthew 21 to 24, 25-ish, you'd actually see, interestingly, that there's this subtle sort of, well, why would you want to follow after the Sadducees and the Pharisees when you can follow Jesus? He's sort of subtly doing this uh, in the passage. Historical background helps to bridge the ancient world of the Old Testament to you and I. It helps us bridge the parables of Jesus to our world between the first century churches that Paul wrote to and the 21st century church that we fellowship in. We need to get in the text to know what it says. We need to get behind the text and understand author, history, audience, some of the background. But finally, we need need to ask ourselves, what has happened in front of the text? What is happening in front of the text. This is where we begin to consider resources outside of our Bibles, where we use commentaries, where we get various perspectives from church history, from sermons, from Bible study materials to help us see how the text has been understood by others, to see what the Holy Spirit has revealed to them and to help us better understand the text. Consider What happened to Nehemiah? The prophet Nehemiah brought revival to Israel. And here's how he did it. Nehemiah 8.8. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's what Nehemiah did to bring revival. He read from the Bible and he helped them understand what it says. End of the day, end of the story, right? And so it's so interesting, first, that Nehemiah actually tells us there what preachers are to do, not to entertain you, not to make you feel good, not even to inspire and encourage you, not to come up with something clever, but to tell you what the Bible says. Give it sense, help you understand it. 
But also, it reminds us that you can read a passage and still need help from others who come in front of the text to help you see what God has revealed. The people in Nehemiah's day needed Nehemiah to explain it to them. Jesus needed to help the Sadducees see a reality they missed. This is why we need other people, pastors, leaders, small groups, friends, family. We need commentaries, Bible study materials to study the Bible in community with others. I hope that you've never walked away from a sermon and gone, I could have never got that on my own. Or gone, man, I don't know where he got that at all. No, 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 no. You should come away going, I see it now. Thank you for helping make sense of the text. And let me tell you something. I hope I, hope I don't ruin, ruin anything. But the, the pastor doesn't just go into the closet, hear voices, and come out and be ready to preach. I hope, I hope that's not what you think I do every day. There's study, there's reading, there is prayer, yes, for God to help, but there's lots of doing exactly what I'm teaching you to do here, getting in the text, behind the text, looking at what other people have said. Because if we truly believe the Holy Spirit speaks through the Bible, why do we care about what it's revealed to us and not care about what he's revealed to others? And this doesn't mean a sort of every perspective is equal, some sort of subjective thing. No, we weigh everything with all three questions in mind. What is in the text, behind the text, in front of it to help us discern what is true and what is false? So we study God's word by asking questions in the text, considering vocab and syntax. We ask questions behind the text about the audience and the author. And we ask questions in front of the text by finding commentaries and trusted Bible teachers to help you along the way. That's completely okay that there are times you come, that you come to the Bible by yourself sometimes and don't understand. Either you may understand what it's saying, but not understand the significance of it. That's completely normal. That's why you need, that's why we all need help from one another to press forward. But We don't simply want to know what the Bible means, right? We want to be able to apply it to our lives. We don't simply want to be knowers, but doers. But in order to be doers, we need to begin by being knowers. Let me tell you this. So many folks try to apply the Bible outside of the context of what the verse means, and stuff just gets wild. Like, People will quote this verse. Y'all probably heard this before, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So you know what? I'm not going to study for my test tomorrow. Jesus will help me get that A. He might. He might also let you fall flat on your face to teach you why you should study for your test beforehand, right? Some people go, well, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Let me try to move Mount Everest by myself. Okay. Jesus can help you with that, but he also might let you make a fool out of yourself, right? Because the context of that verse is is Christian contentment in all circumstances, that Christ will help you and give you strength to endure whatever comes into your life, not to point out how great and awesome your ability to do things will be. So we've got to be careful 
we consider a context before we begin to apply things. That's why we need to start with what the text means before we begin to go to applying it to what we need to do with it. We also need to be mindful when we apply the Bible to genre. Think about this. Just because someone did something in the Bible doesn't mean you should do it. We learned that when we studied the life of Abraham, right? If you learned one thing from Abraham's life, it is do not marry multiple women, right, men? Amen. I got a few amens out there. Hopefully a few, hopefully we all got that one way or another, right? That wasn't something that wasn't given to us in the life of Abraham to go, you know what? I should do that. No, the Bible is open and honest about human sin, even the sins of the heroes of faith. And so genre can help you to determine, is this something I'm supposed to do and emulate? Or is this something that's telling me simply what happened? Is the text descriptive, describing what occurred, or prescriptive, telling us what to do? And finally, we need to know the Bible isn't given to us simply to feed our knowledge or even to give us a to-do list. But it's ultimately given so that we would be conformed to the image of Christ. As you read God's word, it's actually reading you and changing you. Here's what Paul had to say about it in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that you might be able to discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. So notice it tells us that by reflecting on knowing the mercies of God, it will transform and renew our minds. And where do we learn about these mercies of God? Romans 1 to 11, right? Talks all about this. God's mercy, God's grace. And man, if you've ever read the book of Romans, it's hefty, right? It's very full of knowledge and argument. It's Paul's sort of PhD thesis about what Jesus came to do And it wasn't given to us to kind of encourage our preconceived perspectives or even to inform our mind, but to conform us and transform us into Christ's image. Bible study without transformation isn't Bible study. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to happen overnight. Friends, Bible study is like diet and exercise. I can't just go out. Man, I tell my wife this all the time. I'm like, hey, we... We'll go eat, and then, man, I'll go to Subway, and if I got some lettuce on my sandwich, I've eaten healthy for the day, right? I don't need to do anything else. Isn't that how that goes? No? Well, don't, don't tell her that, right? And some of us treat, think, well, okay, if I just slap a little bit of, a, of Bible into my life, maybe read a verse or two and, and don't really do much with it, that'll be okay. But no, but if you daily, slowly diet and exercise, if you daily, slowly meditate and spend time in God's word, it will transform you to be more like Jesus would have you to be. So application matters. It isn't enough simply to have all the answers in your head. There are so many people that can have a seminary level education, but it never gets from here to here to here into how they live and walk. And so we need to make sure our minds and hearts and lives are transformed. So how do we make this application? How do we 
begin to go from knowers to doers, I've got five questions that I'd encourage you to ask in your own Bible reading. I love acronyms. If you don't like them, you can take what you want of this. But I use the acronym SPEC to get into every spec of the text. So let's consider this S. Is there a sin to avoid? Consider as you read the text, is there a sin to avoid? This isn't simply, hey, thou shalt not, though that's good. But also notice what a particular character, the situation they get themselves into by what they do or don't do. Consider this, uh, 1 Corinthians 10.6 tells us this. It's speaking about how the nation of Israel rejected God and lived in unbelief. And here's what Paul says. Now, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. There are things in the Bible of people blowing it big time that are there to go, this is what happens when you do that. Don't do it. Don't do it. So we need to ask ourselves as we're reading through passages, okay, is there something here that I'm to avoid? There's a, there's a way to make application. P, second, is there a promise to claim? Is there a promise to claim? Every benediction we've ever closed this service with is a promise every believer can claim. Philippians chapter 4, 19 to 20 says this, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus to God and Father, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. If you are a Christian, that is a promise for you. And don't forget to consider how in every single passage, the promises that have come to you are ultimately in Christ. Jesus is the point through types and shadows and even explicitly consider this. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us this. For all of God's promises find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his Glory. So make sure to consider Jesus and his promises in light of the passage. Third, E, is there an example to follow? Is there an example to follow? Just as there are sins to avoid, there are positive moral examples to follow. Some people are really uh, nervous about that, don't want to do that, uh, don't want to think about examples to follow. But, but I do think that's very important to think about that in light of all these other questions. Hebrews chapter 11 is given to us to have a hall of faith, to think about the faith of Abraham stepping out into the unknown. Think of this, Romans chapter 15 tells us this, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. What about the passage that you're reading encourages you to action and gives you hope in faith? Fourth, is there a command to obey? Let me be brief here. The Bible's full of things to do, isn't it? Pray for one another, love one another, my favorite, put up with one another. There are all these commands we find throughout the Bible. And in the spirit of God, we actually have the power to do what God has commanded us to do. And I don't think we often think about how good it is that God has spoken in his word and given us commands. God hasn't left us wayward to figure out what to do or where to go or what to think about certain things. David in Psalm 19 understood this incredible reality. And here's what he said. He erupted in praise 
in Psalm 19 and says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, dripping off the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned and in Keeping them there is great reward. Always of saying it is good that God has given us commands and that those are good things. And lastly, we ask, is there knowledge about God to be believed? This is the bottom line. We come to God's word to know God. Even if you don't walk away with action steps to do or application right away, we come to know who God is. And that's the most important reality in all of the universe. And let me say this. It is not until we're driven by a desire to know God that we will study the depths of the scripture as we should. It is not until we come with a desire to know God deeply that we will study the scriptures as we should. Because so often, you were probably told this, the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth, right? I don't really find that all that helpful, (laughs) to be honest with you. I don't think that really gets around what the Bible really is. Because basic instructions aren't things that you mine and love. It's not treasure. It's not greater than gold or sweeter than honeycomb, but God is. Philippians, uh, Psalm 111 says this, Psalm 111 verse 2, great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. At the bottom of it all, what you need are not tools, though tools are good, and I hope I've helped you with some today. What you need is not a reading plan, though those are good, and I can get you some, and and we'll actually be having a reading plan the first of the year for us, if you want to, to go through the Bible together. Study Bibles and commentaries are good, and we can get you some of those. But friends, what you need to study the Bible as you should is a delight in God. What you need at the bottom of it all is hunger and coming to get food for a hungry soul and eager for your eyes to be enlightened to the glory of God. Let me close here. Would you say that you delight in God? Because many of us say we know him and yet delight not in him. And it really seems to show we may not understand him truly at all. We may not know him truly at all because God is not an idea to be mastered or a morality to live in obedience to. No, God is a person to be delighted in. And we come and he has revealed himself in the scripture, in the Bible. And the Bible also tells us that God has revealed himself to us by coming to dwell with us as a baby in a manger who grew up to be a savior on the cross and to three days later rise again from the dead to defeat sin and death and hell. And this is why we study the Bible to know the gospel and to see the good news that God saves sinners through his son, 
Jesus. And today, if you don't know Jesus, you can enter into a relationship with him, to delight in him, to study him, to pursue him, and to know him through turning from your sins and placing your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ alone. The most popular Bible verse is still simple truth. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's not truth just to pass over passively, but to chew on and study and to consider today. But for those of us who do know Christ, this everlasting life isn't simply meant to start when we die, but everlasting life starts in the here and now. And we were made to study the works of God and to delight in him. And so the invitation stands to grab God's word and to delight in him together. Let's stand and let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful that you have given us your word. You could have left us without knowledge of who you are, but you've revealed yourself, yes, in creation generally and the things that you've made, but you've also revealed yourself specifically, especially, uniquely in the Bible. And so may we give ourselves towards studying your word. Greater the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. Help us to delight in them. To know you and love you and to pursue you with whatever tools may help us. Whatever trusted men and women of God that you've called and given your spirit. Lord, with whatever resources we can use to know you and to pursue you. And I pray right now, if there's any within the sound of my voice who do not know you, their heart that you would give them just an interest in what is so great about this word, about this book. Because we know that the Spirit speaks through this book. And right now I pray that your Spirit through this book is calling out to those who are in need of hearing a word from you now right in their situation. Have you not read what was said to you individually by God, through his word, through words on a page. Help us to pursue that, to understand that, and to know that. And Lord, help us, give us a delight in you so that we will study you as we ought and as we should. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
And God's word is good, and we do come to adore him. Have you ever wondered, man, wouldn't it be great if in God's word, I know he has, he has words on a page, wouldn't it have been great if he drew some pictures in there for us? Well, the good news is God actually has given us two pictures in order to know who he is. Water baptism, death, burial, and resurrection, and the Lord's Supper. So it is to the Lord's Supper that we celebrate. You can grab uh, your cup and your juice. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And consider this, I often call the Lord's Supper a second sermon in picture form. Think of it as the Bible, the movie for us right here and the picture God has given us to think about these things. And so 1 Corinthians 11 reminds us of this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a sermon in miniature, a sermon in picture form to send us out and to remind us regularly of the greatest event in human history, that Jesus Christ has come, he has died on the cross for us, and he's risen again, and he is reigning in heaven and has a mission for his church to do. And so he sends us out today with this benediction and power to study his word and to share it with others. This from 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.